what you thought you had and what you got and it's okay to doubt to all right good morning everybody how you guys doing i should say good morning good evening good afternoon good whatever it is if you're watching us at home or online whenever wherever you are joining us um i am just so thankful that you are with us today i think um I think God has a great message for you, and I can confidently say that because no matter how broken or flawed the vessel that delivers the message, I know the Word of God finds its way. It finds its way into the heart, and it will have its way, and I think this is one of those, and the reason I know that is because, man, this message was having its way with me this week. It really was. So, hey, before we even get going... Happy Independence Day, happy 4th of July. I know technically it was yesterday, but if you're like me, you're probably suffering a little bit of the leftovers. I know our neighborhood was like a battle zone until about 11.30 last night, and the windows were shaking and rattling, the dog was hiding under the bed. Uh, It was, yeah, it was was fun for a while, but then at some point I became that that older guy, it's like, get off my lawn, it's time to go to bed already. And then I realized that was me, and I went, but I just have to accept that that's where I am in life. I needed my sleep. But anyway, it was fun. Hope you guys had a good one. Hope you guys have fun. Um, Let's get going in this message. Uh, Welcome uh, to our newcomers. I see several new faces out there. If I haven't had a chance to say hi, Uh, I want to do more than just hi on the way. So we'll be after service hanging out. Uh, I'd love to be able to touch base with you a little bit more. It means a lot that you take some time and and you choose to come and spend it with us. Time is precious and where you choose to worship, where you choose to hear the word of God is a precious thing and it's an important decision and I don't take that lightly. So I hope that you are fed and and well fed here this morning. We teach, just a quick word, at at Discover, we teach or I teach uh, an expository style, which means I go into the scripture and we look at what the scripture itself says, what it means. Let's dig into what it says and why it says it versus a theme where I might use scriptures to back up a point that I'm trying to make. And I say this, and I point it out because God has impressed on me from the very beginning, but even more so lately, that the Word of God is sufficient. The Word of God is enough, and it's complete to speak on everything that our human condition will ever face. From the beginning of time to today to whatever time we have left on this earth, the Word of God contained in the Bible is sufficient. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit in us helping us to use this roadmap to navigate what comes our way is enough. I'm reading a lot of of books. I don't know about you, but I'm reading a lot more. Other than the Bible, I'm reading a lot more other books on on, uh, social activism and race relations and just different things like that that's going on. One of the books I'm reading, though, is, and I've read parts of it before, but I'm reading it in its entirety now, is C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. I don't know how many of you have ever read that. It's a wonderful book. It's an amazing. C.S. Lewis just has a way uh, of pinpointing things and saying them in a way that makes things come to life. But one of the things that he said, now, C.S. Lewis wrote this book back in World War II, and he, he's uh, a Briton, so he's in London in the middle of the Blitz, and bombs are raining down, and the Nazis are rampaging through Europe. It's a, it's a terrible time for them. And he's addressing the fact that those, those people in, in England specifically were complaining against the church that it wasn't addressing social issues. And they had some social issues, right? It's like, what... What does the Bible say? What does the church have to say about the Nazis? What does the church have to say about these things that are going on? And what he said, and he said it very eloquently, he said, asking the church to speak on social issues would be like asking the bishop to write a self-help book on gardening. It's not what he was trained for. But for him to speak on what he was trained for and what God called him to speak on, then God will translate that into action in our hearts. So I believe that, which is why 
Not that we won't address social issues from time to time, but I believe, again, the word of God is sufficient. And because of that, we dig into it in depth. So today, if you came expecting a fluff message, you aren't getting it here today. We are continuing in our series on, we call it the Trey Asar, which is a Hebrew word that means the twelve. And the 12 specifically in this case is not the 12 apostles as we might naturally think. It's the 12 minor prophets. Okay, Called minor prophets not because what they said was any less important, but because their writing in general is much shorter, much more pinpointed to a specific people or a specific time and place. And so that's, that's the series that we're in. Last week we taught about the prophet Haggai. Haggai, now Haggai is kind of a contemporary of this week's prophet, which is Zechariah or Zechariah. And they prophesied to pretty much the same people at the same time for the same reason in the same situation. So if you didn't see last week's message or didn't catch it, go back and listen. I lay a lot of the groundwork as far as what was going on, bless you, as far as that time. And that helps us understand the context and the situation. But for those of you who didn't catch last week's or, or haven't had a chance to yet, I want to do kind of a quick recap just so you can kind of see where we are in time and place. It's important to understand context when we're talking about what the Word of God says. So let's go back just a little bit, do a quick recap um, of last week, and then again that pertains to this week. So the year 538 B.C., 538 B.C., before the birth of Christ, that is where we find ourselves in this time. And Cyrus the Great of Persia, Persian king, had just agreed to release the Judean captives from 70 years of captivity. They had been conquered by the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar, taken out of Judea, and enslaved. They lived as captives in a foreign land for 70 years. Now, at some point in there, the Persian army comes in, conquers the Babylonians, but takes these prisoners basically as spoils of war. You're our property now. So they're being passed down from conqueror to conqueror just as, as if they were property or plunder from a, from a battle. But after all this time, a prophet named Daniel, the Daniel that wrote the book of Daniel, he comes to Cyrus. He has found an audience with Cyrus. He comes to him, and he reminds him or tells him of a scripture from Isaiah written 150 years prior to this where Cyrus is specifically mentioned by name, saying that not only will you release the captives, but you will send them back to their home, and you will pay for rebuilding what was damaged. Cyrus sees the wisdom in this, even though he's a pagan king. He sees the wisdom in this, and he totally catches that vision and releases the captives, gives them freedom to return home to their homeland, and also bankrolls the rebuilding of the temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians. So not even the Persians destroyed it. The Babylonians before them are the ones who destroyed it. But he sends them back with that charge. Now, we know that about 50,000 or so captives head back to their homeland, head back to the land of Judah. Now, if we look at history, we find that several times that number, a couple hundred thousand, were actually taken into captivity. Then there were generations born in captivity. So that number of 50,000 that comes back reflects also that there are 100,000 or more who chose to stay, who chose not to come back to the homeland. Why? We'll talk about that more in a little bit. Sometimes that idea of being captive in a foreign land where you don't have to worry about your own defense, you don't have to worry about anything, you just do what you're told and live your life, that was attractive to a certain number of people. So not all of them came, but the 50,000 that did come back, we would call them maybe the hardcore remnant, those who said, we need to get back to the things of God. We need to get back to our homeland, the promised land for us. We need to get back there, and we need to resume our lives. So those are the 50,000 exiles that we see coming back. 
Now, they return to find Solomon's temple, Solomon's grand, beautiful temple that he had built right before the exile is destroyed. There's virtually nothing of it left. It's been ransacked. It's been totally destroyed. The walls of Jerusalem have been torn down in big sections. The city has just been ransacked. It's, it's in a terrible place. Zerubbabel, we find installed as governor by King Cyrus. He, he places Zerubbabel there and Joshua as the high priest, basically elected or, or empowered by Cyrus then to govern this territory. They're not given complete freedom. They're still kind of a, of a subject state, but they are given this charge to rebuild the temple. So after they come back home, they start tending to rebuilding their homes and kind of getting things in order again. It takes them about two years before they finally go, oh yeah, we were given money and a charge to go ahead and rebuild the temple. Let's go ahead and start that now. So they start that, but almost as quickly as they start rebuilding the temple, they stop rebuilding the temple. And why does this happen? Well, it happens because of a number of reasons. They find this is hard. Rebuilding all this. We're not, this is not what we're cut out for, but this is what we're supposed to do, but it's kind of hard. More importantly, they were told by Cyrus, it's time to go home and rebuild your temple. Here's the money. They didn't necessarily hear from God, meaning they didn't have that charge from the Lord to do it. It just seemed like what they ought to do. So very quickly, when they started getting faced with, with difficulties, harassment from their neighbors, different things like that, they very quickly lost their enthusiasm for working on the temple. So they set that side, they set that work aside. If you remember the result, our first scripture, Ezra 4.24, says just simply this, then work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of King Darius, or Darius king of Persia, 16 years. 16 years it just sits there with nothing happening, meaning that the people of Judah, as they went about rebuilding their lives after all this time of captivity, walked by the ruins of the temple day after day after day for 16 years. If you've been there, the temple is on a hill. You see it from anywhere that you are in Jerusalem. And they saw it, and it didn't seem to matter. We've got other things to tend to. We've got our own lives to live. God's around somewhere. That's fine. We'll get to it someday. It was not a priority in their lives. You can read Ezra chapter 4 if you want to learn more about kind of how that went down. But then at some point, the Lord stirs their spirit to get back to work. Haggai chapter 1 verse 14, I'll just read it for you. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. So the Lord stirs this spirit, this zeal, this renewed energy and vigor to get back to the temple, and they do. They listen, and they get back on it, and they start working. Okay? Seeing their repentance and their, this revival of spirit for the things of God, God gives them a few more words through Haggai of, of encouragement. Keep going. Keep going. There's a much better prize than this, and you'll see it soon. So while, while the prophecy of Haggai, you could look at it and just say, really, he's just focused on a construction project. He's all about, let's just get this job done. And that is true to a point. But while he is, he is interested in starting this revival, which actually just starts with an act of obedience, an act of service, and that overflows into a revival for the things of God in their hearts. And when the Lord sees that happening, he promises them there is so much better to come. He, in fact, at one point says the temple... The future glory will be so much greater than it is now. Because if you remember, they're a little disappointed. Their temple wasn't turning out as grand as Solomon's temple. But he says there's so much better glory to come. And in fact, on a small part of that glory, this temple that they're building now lasts for about 500 years. 
So it stands for a long, long time. And in fact, this is the temple when Jesus returns to Jerusalem. This is the temple that he's worshiping at. It's so much more than just a building project. Although Haggai couldn't see it, uh, Zechariah starts to give us a glimpse of that. So this is where we are. We're in Zechariah. Now, I want to tell you, as we've gone through this, each one of the minor prophets has been essentially one week. One weekend, I feed you with a fire hose and we get in all that information on Zechariah. This time, this is going to be broken into a few weeks. So we're going to be in Zechariah for probably three weeks, maybe even four weeks as we go through. Maybe more if the Lord moves the way he did in my heart in this one. And here's why. The book of Zechariah is to quote, so John MacArthur is a uh, theologian, Bible scholar. He actually authored my study Bible that I use most of the time. He talked about the book of Zechariah like this. He says, this book is the most messianic, apocalyptic, and eschatological, big word for you, one in the Old Testament, second only to Isaiah. Now, here's what those terms mean. Messianic just means what? Just means related to Christ, right? About Christ, about a coming Messiah. Apocalyptic is, would be related, it's a, actually a genre of writing in the Bible, but it means um, regarding the final event or a final event, right? And then eschatological is a study of all those things surrounding and leading up to this final event. So in other words, what he's saying is as you read the book of Zechariah, as you hear it taught, you need to think of it through the lens of a coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. Because only second to Isaiah, and I would argue that in many ways, this is even more messianic in its message. But we need to hear, as we hear this teaching and read it, think of it, listen to it through a lens of a coming Messiah. We're going to divide it into a few different sections. So we've got kind of this introductory sort of session tonight, uh, today, even more than an introduction, though, and I'll explain that in a minute. Then we have these eight visions, kind of like we see in the book of Revelation, where they're given these visions, and we have to kind of dissect what these visions are. So eight visions, four separate teachings, and four separate sermons that in his priestly role he's teaching, and then two prophetic oracles. An oracle just simply means burden, meaning he was burdened by the Lord with a word of prophecy that he had to share. So we see all these things unfolding in these chapters, which is why I'm not even going to try and get it all done in one message. We're going we're gonna to break it apart so that we can do it justice and really see what's going on here. It is, there's so much meat here that we are going to have to break it into bite-sized pieces. So that being said, I've been giving you the Cliff's Notes version of all these teachings as we go through. There's no Cliff's Notes version to this one. You're going to have to listen to see what we talk about. So let's go in. Let's jump immediately in then to who is Zechariah. Where'd he come from? Who is he? We already talked about some of the background, like where he was and what was going on. Same things as Haggai from last week. Now, Zechariah prophesied, as I said, to the same people at the same time for virtually the same reason. But whereas Haggai was talking about the construction, Zechariah takes it from that point and carries it forward, talking about the significance of this. Haggai was an old man. Haggai was 70-plus years old. Remember, Haggai had actually seen Solomon's temple before it was destroyed, then went into captivity for 70 years, and then came back. So he's, he's all we know for sure is that he's well more than 70. He's an old man at this time. Where on the flip side, Zechariah is a young man at this time. He's actually born in in captivity in Babylon. So he's never seen Solomon's temple. He's never even seen his homeland up to this point. He's, he's spent his whole life in training. Now he comes from a priestly line, so he was learning. He was learning the things of God, and he was growing in that role, but he had never worshiped in a temple. He had never taught in a temple. He had certainly never seen Solomon's temple or again, even his homeland. And so now he gets to come home for the first time. 
And this is what he has to say. So the word, the name Zechariah just means the one who Jehovah remembers. He lived, he did live to be an old man. He was eventually martyred, but he did live to be an old man. He lived all the way, in fact, all the way to the reign of Persian king Xerxes. If you remember, Xerxes is the one who married Esther. So if you want to read the book of Esther, you can kind of get a little context as a time frame there. Now, Michelangelo did a painting of him for the Sistine Chapel, and here's, a, here's kind of an image of him. There's a, there's a couple of them in there, but I love this one. Obviously, it depicts him later. The last few chapters that we'll talk about were written as Zechariah was an old man. But when we start out, he's a young man. There, now, there's, 30, there's about 30 or so Zechariahs in the Old Testament. We need to make sure we're talking about the right Zechariah when we talk about this. This is the one that Jesus actually refers to. In Matthew, when Jesus is teaching, Matthew 23, 35, Jesus describes him like this, murdered between the temple and the altar. Then he goes on, he's chastising the Pharisees for what they have done. So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the righteous Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, A to Z. I don't know if it's significant or not. The son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. That's significant because there's another one we read about in Second Chronicles, another Zechariah, or another, uh, yeah, another Zechariah who's actually killed at the temple as well. It's not the same Zechariah. Not significant for our theology, but just to, just to keep it clear. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, kind of a fun fact for Bible nerds who are out there. The Talmud, the Talmud is, remember, it's not scripture. It's kind of a companion to the Hebrew Bible. And the Talmud says that Zechariah was a member of what they called the Great Synagogue, which was a council of 120 priests originated by Nehemiah, prophet Nehemiah, and presided over by Ezra. And this council, this... this um, uh, great synagogue eventually kind of morphed into being the Sanhedrin, okay, which we see in the times of Christ. Remember, the Sanhedrin is kind of the Jewish Supreme Court. So let's jump in. If you want to jump into the deep end of the pool with me, and we're going to talk about a chunk of this book. Now, when I say a chunk, I set out to do at least a third of it, right, all the way up to like maybe chapter 6, chapter 7. I got three verses in, and the Lord stopped me, grabbed me by the shoulder and, and put my head down and said, see that? I want you to see that, and that's what I want you to preach on. And I could not, no matter how much I tried, go any further than that. So I'm going to read this to you. This is Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read that, and then we're going to go back and talk about them. So follow along in your Bible, whatever version you have. I use the New American Standard to study from. So if you have that, it'll read the same. If not, you can just listen or follow along in yours. Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. So that's verses 1 through 6. Let's take a closer look. Let's go and, and take some of that apart and look and really see What's happening here? First one, Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We've got this on the screen here. In the eighth month 
of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. So let's take that apart a little bit. Now, this is only two months after Haggai first spoke. So the, the construction of the temple is, is, is uh, progressing, but it's, it's still deep in there. Ido is basically his grandfather. Ido or Ido was one of the priests who was released from Babylon and came back with Zerubbabel. We know that because if we read Nehemiah chapter 4, there's a list of all the different priests who were released and came back. That's important to know in that he did come from, Zechariah came from a priestly line. So he is both a priest and a prophet, and he's from a line of priests. So um, he had never seen a temple of God. I think that, that blows my mind that he came back and he had never seen his homeland and never seen a temple of God and yet here he is helping oversee the, the construction of this. The word angry there, when we look at angry as far as the Lord was very angry with your fathers, that's a word, it's a Hebrew word, katsaf, and it means to be provoked to anger. Meaning God is patient, God is long-suffering, but at some point, his patience will run out, and there needs to be a correction. So let's take just a second to talk about God's wrath. That word angry, katsaf, is, is the def, by definition, it means just provoked to wrath. Not anger, but to wrath. So let's talk about that. I think wrath, the idea of God's wrath, is really, really misunderstood. So many people go, in the Old Testament, God was angry and wrathful. The New Testament, God is warm and cuddly. But that is not the case. They are one and the same. God is unchanging. His character never changes. But some things have to be different due to the fact that we now have the Holy Spirit within us. And in some cases, prior to the law, it had to be different. Let's talk about that. Two types of wrath found in the Bible. There's punishment and there's discipline. Now, you would think of punishment and discipline as fine lines of the same thing. And this is why it can be so confusing to talk about this. Punishment is mostly in, in um, the context of negative consequences, right? Its most basic form of correction is negative consequences for your actions. It's going to hurt, right? It's usually in the form of just punishment. It's going to hurt. It's a spanking for somebody who doesn't understand words. It is, it is a crop failure for somebody who has no clue how to react or how to follow the law. It's mostly in terms of pain. And our basic human instinct is the avoidance of pain. So if I did that and it hurt, I'm going to stop doing that, theoretically. Some of us take a few times. One is used for the correction of behavior. The other is a response to repeated and intentional rebellion. It's important to understand that. When we talk about God's discipline, Romans chapter 4, verse 14, Paul says it like this. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also no violation. What Paul's talking about here is Mosaic law. And he's talking about this idea of correction. Without the law, you have nothing to be corrected to. It's simply a matter of smacking your hand if you reach for something, inflicting pain to stop you from doing that. Once you have the law, now you at least have a guideline that you can be held responsible to. And this is where God's corrective discipline comes in. So before the law was given, God's wrath was only really just in punishment. Pain is a consequence. After the law was given, that wrath of God turns to a corrective discipline. After the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, then, God's wrath is mostly in the form of internal conviction, which in many cases hurts a whole lot more than a slap on the hand. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, the best religious teaching often is just a reminder of what we already instinctively know. 
what he's saying there is as a Christian, we have the Holy Spirit in us, and we know what's right and what's wrong. And so when we're taught things out of the Word, which is very important, it should just be reminding us of things we already know. So back to the wrath. The word wrath, either the word wrath, anger, or fury of the Lord appear 658 times in the Old Testament. 658 times. 500 of those times is God's wrath as discipline, as corrective discipline to his people. There was only one time, before the law was given, there was only one time when that was used against God's people. So in other words here, to wrap it up, God's wrath when directed towards his children is meant to be a corrective discipline, not simply the infliction of pain. We see God's wrath as punishment. We do see that And we see that later on, mostly primarily in the New Testament. We see that after about chapter 14 of the book of Revelation, where the people had been given opportunity after opportunity, chance and chance and chance again, to turn to God, and they refused. There was no ambiguity about what they were refusing. They flatly refused and defied God. And at this point, God's wrath becomes punishment. Read Revelation 14 on if you want to see how that works. But let's get back to the meat of this one, the part that I love. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3. Therefore, read this carefully. Therefore, say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, declares the Lord of hosts. What's the first thing that jumps out to you when you read that? Lord of hosts is repeated three times. He must want to get that through to you. So what does that mean? Lord of hosts times three has got to mean something significant. If we jump into it, we see that it's a Hebrew word. The Lord of hosts translates as one single Hebrew word, Saba. And Saba means army or warfare in its most basic term. What this literally means in context is the God of war who commands all armies. When it says the Lord of hosts, I'll admit when I first used to read the the phrase Lord of hosts, I just thought Lord is a gracious God, Lord is king of kings, and he's hosting all these other kings, and it's kind of a a term of hospitality is, is how I used to see it until I really studied it. Here's what it means The God of war who commands all armies, Persian armies, Hebrew armies, Moabite armies, all armies, all earthly and heavenly armies. In this case, he's talking about just earthly armies. Here's what this means, though, is if you think that you're going to get your way by building a stronger army with better weapons and better training and being sneakier and craftier than the next guy, you are wrong because God is the commander of all armies. He'll use the Persian army. He'll use the Babylonian army. He will use your army to accomplish his will in whatever way he needs to. And so rather than to just keep trying harder to push your way and inflict your way, seek him first because his will is going to be done. When it says return to me, the return to me is a Hebrew word. It means shub. It's pronounced shub. And the definition is just to turn back. It's not repentance. It's to come back to where you've been. You've been here. You left me. Come back. Because when you come back, it goes on to say, that I may return to you. Come back to me so that I can come back to you. That's deeper than it might look on the surface. Let's look at that a little bit. These people, the people of Judah, they were God's covenant people, and they knew it. Going all the way back okay, to the first Abrahamic covenants and all those subsequent ones, Let's talk about this, Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. I'll read it for you. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. Leave this place, in other words. 
to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. They knew that that was meant for them. They knew they were a part of that lineage. And so their assumption was, no matter how many times we mess up, no matter how many times we stray and are corrected and come back, we're God's people. God will always be with us. He'll always be good and gracious to us. And so their idea was, well, we can stray and we'll just come back. That's where we end up with this roller coaster of good kings, bad kings. We're God's covenant people. He's always going to be with us, right? They knew they had strayed because numerous prophets, as we've seen, continued to remind them, you're off the path. You have strayed. There's going to be a price to pay. And sure enough, God's correction would shortly follow in, in many ways, right? So they knew that they kept messing up. But this idea that at some point God had left the building never occurred to them. Remember, they walked past the temple for 16 years watching it lie in ruins, and it never occurred to them that God wasn't still with them. But their lives weren't bearing that out. They kept getting more chances, and they messed up every time, and they get another chance, not because they earned it, certainly not because they earned it, but because of who God is and because of this covenant promise. And he wasn't about to change his covenant, but something had to change because they were not connecting the dots in their heads. They were just simply not getting there. God's dwelling place in the temple was not what he wanted. When he was all about Haggai and rebuild the temple for me, it wasn't about, I want my house, fix up my house first. It was a lesson for them to learn. God's plan was not, I want you to build me a temple over here so that I can be near my people. His original plan was always to be with and among his people. And so that's what he wanted. The temple was simply a place for him, for, for his spirit to reside while the people were prepared for what a blessing it would really be to have the Lord among them. He had so much better covenant than even this in mind, but they weren't ready for it yet. So the temple needed to be rebuilt. So let's look at that word return again, where it says, return to me. It's a Hebrew, ver Hebrew verb, shub, and it, it means to turn back to, that I may return to you. Now, they had lived, and, and we saw that, that 100,000 or more re remained up in the, in the area of the Persians because they didn't want to have to worry about their protection. They could glom on to whatever miscellaneous gods or way of life or different pleasures that were up there without having to just focus on the things of God. When they needed God, they would worship him. When they thought they needed him, they would pray to him. But they could pick and choose whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. I think a lot of us see God kind of in that way. Here's an image that I think a lot of us Look at the Word of God. In case of emergency, break glass. I'll go in with my life. I'll do the best I can. And when things really get bad and I can no longer handle it on my own, well, I'll break the glass and I'll ask God for help. I think a lot of us look at it that way, and I think they were doing the very same thing. But in order to stop this roller coaster of up and down and good and bad and times of famine and times of feast, there had to be a permanent change among the people. And that could never come from inside them. There had to be something different that would happen. Let's go on real quick. Zechariah uh, chapter 1, verses 4 to 6. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets proclaimed saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, return now from your evil ways. I read that scripture up at the beginning. They'd paid a price for, as a nation for their disobedience, for the rebellion. They, they paid that price over and over again, just playing lip service to the things of God and then glomming onto whatever was around them when it suited their purpose better. But God is unchanging. 
God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's also patient and merciful. And he wants to give us as many opportunities as possible to turn to him on our own. But he knows our nature better than anyone. What's our nature? A couple snapshots, an Old Testament snapshot. David says in Psalm 14, there is no one who does good. That's the words of David. And then Paul in Romans 3.16 echoes that. There is none righteous, not even one. God knows that better than anyone. In our own flesh, we are not righteous and we will never attain that. We will never attain that state where God can truly walk among and be with his people without help. Which is why we all need Jesus. We can never truly return to God, as this said, so that he may return to us on our own. We never could and we never will be able to do it on our own. The only way we can do this is by accepting a gift from God himself. Now, this is the crazy way that the kingdom of God works. We think in our flesh, in our human nature, when somebody gives you a gift, what's the first thing you think? Unless it's your birthday, you're thinking, what do I have to do? There's a string attached. At the very least, it's why I have to reciprocate. Now I owe you a gift of some kind. Or if it's just totally out of the blue, well, what, why, why? What did you do? There's always some sort of a string attached. But in the kingdom of God, there aren't strings attached, and that's why it's so hard for us to get our mind around this. Here's the paradoxical way that the kingdom of God works. When we accept the gift that Jesus Christ offers us, rather than owing a reciprocal gift, our reward is we receive another gift, even better than the first. When we accept the salvation that Christ offers, in other words, as Scripture says, come to him, we receive another gift that he comes to us. And in this case, today, he dwells in us through the Holy Spirit. But there's an even better gift to come, which none of us have received yet, and that is the second advent of Christ where we will be able to have dinner at his table. We'll be able to walk through the streets of Jerusalem and see God right there. Sit down and talk to Jesus if we want. That's a promise in the Bible. It's coming to the nation of Judah at this time. It simply just meant, if you build the temple building, I'll come back and inhabit it. But they were still separated. There was a lot of work to be done. And in the coming weeks, we'll see as Zechariah tries to help the nation of Judah in general grasp the significance of, of this gift that was to come as he presents in many different ways the coming, the day of the coming of the Lord. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on up. Would you guys pray with me? Father God, we just thank you, Lord, for your greatness, your goodness, your mercy for us that time and time again throughout history, the entire history of mankind has been a history of coming to you and then falling away coming to you and then falling away. But you never reach a point where you turn your back to us and reject us. You are always making a way for us to come to you. And so, Lord, my heart would be that we would all see that. And rather than stray to begin with, we would just stay in your presence. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit in us, whereby we can be with you all day, every day. So, Father, I just repent of ever trying to do things in my own strength and in my own wisdom, and then at some point realizing I'm failing badly, and then I turn to you. Lord, I want your path and your ways. So, Lord, help me to spend more time with you, to hear your voice more than ever, and to make my body a temple worthy of the living God. Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's take communion together. If you're at home, get whatever you have as communion supplies. If you're here in the building, we have a table in the back with the little cups if you didn't grab one.
let's take communion together and just not only remember, as Jesus says, remember me when you do this, let's celebrate what he has done. When we take the body of Christ, which is the bread or the wafer from the top, his body was broken on the cross for us, much in the way I think that our, our will, our human will, fleshly will needs to be broken in order to truly receive the gift that he offers. Let's take the body of Christ together. And the blood of Christ, as he says himself, is the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant which is alluded to here in the teaching that we're learning about now, but they had no idea the significance that one day we would be with the Lord in person, in the flesh, in heaven. And that's a promise. And if we partake in the blood of Christ, then we agree with that covenant. Take the blood. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. And all I can say is come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you, church. together strangers neighbors our blood is one children of generations of every nation of kingdom come so don't let your heart be troubled Hold your head up high, don't fear no evil. Fix your eyes on this one truth. God is madly in love with you. Let's stand and sing this with me. Hold on, be strong. Remember where our help comes from. Sing it out. Children, clean hands. 
your heart's good grace, good God, sings Jesus. Sing that again. Swing wide. Swing wide. Let the place go up as the walls come down. All creation, everything with red the sound. All his children, clean and pure hearts, good grace. Oh, your kingdom come. 